Hi, and welcome to the Gene Space, where I talk about creativity, writing, music, life in an autistic household, and other random stuff. I'm so glad you're listening today. One of the challenging non-musical things about being a musician uh, is adapting to different performance spaces. Um, especially if you're an autistic musician, and most especially at an event where the instrumentalists are more incidental. In a symphony concert, everybody comes to the concert to watch the musicians, but if you're in a theater, people come to the theater to watch the actors. Um, If you're in the background music at an event, they're coming to enjoy uh, all the people. So musicians and our instruments kind of necessarily take up space that could otherwise be used to store props or seat audience members or add another table to the buffet and it's always fascinating to see how various uh, people in charge solve this problem and as is typical the solutions create a new set of problems for musicians it's kind of like trying to pack ourselves into the car for a long trip um and uh, we always we always do our best. Enjoy the show. It's pretty tight in here," said the music director. "I hope you're not claustrophobic." I edged past his keyboard and towards my seat, which was four careful steps away across an obstacle course of tangled wires, amps, and mics. I managed to get to my chair without knocking anything over. A small victory. When I first started working in musical theater, I very often played in an actual pit, the kind you see in a, at an opera house, an area that's set slightly lower than the stage with room for numerous uh, musicians plus a conductor. The pit quarters were always close. I was accustomed to clambering over people and instruments. Classic-style pits are still standard in opera houses and some theaters, but a lot of venues have repurposed this space to fit in a few extra rows of audience seats. That's profitable, and given that pit orchestras have shrunk a bunch over time, with three to maybe ten people managing parts that used to be covered by twenty or more, I suppose it's practical. The pit tonight was a tight fit for five people, plus nine instruments, plus the drum set and percussion doodads, plus the amps and mics, etc. This is not as crowded feeling as it might seem. The instruments take up space, but they also give each of us a little ring of protection. I've been hired to sub for a couple of performances and was curious about where the pit would be located. The show was at a private university with a good theater department. I thought chances were great that there'd be a real pit or a room down the hall with monitors rather than a few chairs and stands jammed in a corner. Well, as it turned out, we were inhabiting a six by eight foot plywood platform just behind the backdrop, raised 20 feet above the stage. I pulled the flute case from my gig bag and the platform lurched a couple of inches to the left. So did my stomach. Whoa, I said. The MD chuckled. You'll get used to it, he said. Ah ha ha ha, I replied noncommittally. I tried to distract myself by thinking about words. The word for fear of heights is acrophobia. 
The Hitchcock movie is called Vertigo, but Vertigo is a symptom that goes along with the fear, not the fear itself. My distraction didn't work that well. The platform kept shaking and shimmying as the rest of the pit arrived and the show started. I felt less than comfortable. Over time, I've become warier of heights than I used to be, maybe because my balance is going a bit. From time to time, I try the stuff that's supposed to revive old skills, like standing on my left foot with my eyes closed, then switching to the right. But mostly, I go downstairs more cautiously, look for handholds, and stand a foot farther back from the edges. Maybe I should try harder. Should I start climbing trees again? I used to spend hours on medium-high branch branches reading, enjoying the sway as the tree moved with the breeze. Sometimes I pretend that I was in a crow's nest, keeping watch for land or looming icebergs or pirates coming down the creek. We got to a big dance number. The whole cast jumped and twirled. This shook the stage, which made the pit platform rock harder. I peeked down at the actors over the railing, which was about hip high, while counting rests. I do like looking down from a height normally, especially when it's behind the safety of plate glass or a chest-height wall. I tried to remember that. There was a stage mist rising, the lights painting it pink and green. I wondered how well the lookouts in those old ships could see if there was a fog. They may have been too seasick to care. A real crow's nest, hanging partway up the main mast, was no picnic. Being far away from the boat's center of gravity, the effects of wind and wave were greatly magnified. Even hardy sailors tended to get sick in the crow's nest. Sometimes they were sent there as a punishment, even. I was feeling queasy myself. I shushed my stomach some by turning my brain to more speculations about language. When I got home, I typed into Google the question, Do crows nest in crow's nests? Google refused to connect the concepts, filling the search page with non-intersectional articles about boats and crows. One site informed me that the name Crow's Nest may be because the structure itself looks kind of like a nest. Another reference noted that crows typically choose nesting sites that are protected and stable, such as tree crotches. Yet another referred to a purported Viking custom of keeping caged crows on their ships, letting the birds out when they wanted to find the closest land. I thought about it a while and concluded that no crow would nest in a crow's nest of its own volition. Crows are extremely intelligent. Maybe a crow would perch on one for a bit. Crows also seem, if you'll pardon the expression, unflappable, so maybe the motion wouldn't bother them much. A crow's nest, in my opinion, is mostly another way of expressing the concept of a bird's eye view, which I've always thought would be exhilarating. Tonight will be my last show, and I'll try to see things with a crow's eyes. Thanks so much for spending a bit of your day here. As it turned out, when I talked with um, some of the other uh, people in the pit, I wasn't the only one feeling nervous about playing on such a high and seemingly rickety structure, if rickety is the word that I want. 
and rickety is a great word, so I'm going to use it anyway. Sharing fears, I think, is a strange thing. Sometimes it really helps manage them. Um, In the Matilda show, this was what happened. Finding that my fear was reasonable since other people were feeling it, that I wasn't just being a silly old lady, helped me actually to stop focusing on it. I still did get queasy. I still feeling a little sick even the, the next day. But there are other fears that people share that intensify the fear rather than diffuse it. Um, I'm thinking about like various moral panics about schools and libraries that are going around at the moment with people uh, sharing completely debunked stories about kitty litter in classrooms and furries and how horrible it is that a child might be able to read a book about divorce. Um, It's a big topic and one that I may wind up uh, exploring in a bit, Uh, but I still, I think it's the where the fear is located, who the fear is for. We'll see. Anyhow, there's a link to my WordPress blog in the description box if you'd like to read the original or check out some of my other essays. Also, if you're inclined to support this show, that would be much appreciated. Every little bit helps. There's a donations button on my homepage. Until next time, be well.